0: Welcome to Sound & Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound & Vision, Brian Alfred. Claire Sherman received her Bachelor's of Arts from the University of Pennsylvania and her MFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She's completed residencies at the Terra Foundation for American Art, the McDowell Colony, the Marie Walsh Sharp Art Foundation, Yaddo, and the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council's Workspace Program. Recent exhibitions include solo shows at Kavi Gupta Gallery in Chicago, Holdsworth Gallery in London, Aurora Bora at San Francisco, and Hoff & Heiser Gallery in Amsterdam. Recent group exhibitions include the Contemporary Jewish Museum in San Francisco, Gallery Saomi in Seoul, the New Gallery in Austria, and the Neuerberger Museum of Art in Purchase, New York. I met up with Claire at DC Moore Gallery, where she currently has a solo show of large paintings and some small watercolor studies. We discussed our early days playing French horn, the wonders of traveling, the sublime, and so much more. Here's our conversation. But yeah, yeah. it's fun. Yeah. So that, as I was saying, the show looks great. Thank you. The culmination of like a year's worth of work.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: And um, when is the show up through? It's...
1: Um, it closes November 5th. Yeah. Yeah. So it's open for a couple more weeks
0: Nice Yeah. So um, before we talk about the show I mean let's Go back to where you're from Where did you grow up?
1: Um, So I'm from Oberlin, Ohio Mm -hmm. um, And I lived there uh, Full time Until I went to uh, University of Pennsylvania for Mm -hmm. college Um, But I also Have spent a lot of time My family owns a cabin in northern Minnesota So I've spent a lot of time up there like every summer, going up um, on the lake, as they say, going up to the lake. Um,
0: That's a music, Oberlin's a music town, isn't it? It is a music town. It's music-centric. It is. Was that part of the reason your parents were there, or was it they just happened Um, to be there?
1: No, well, my mother went to Oberlin, and my dad taught at Oberlin, and...
0: So you have musician parents. I have what? Musician parents.
1: No, my dad taught um, biology. Oh, okay. Yeah, and and then my stepfather also taught at Oberlin, and he um, taught computer science. Gotcha. So, but the conservatory was definitely like an amazing part of being in Oberlin, yeah. And all the plays that they bring in, and all the just amazing musicians that you had access to concerts of, um, you know, people like Joshua Bell, just. Dropping into town, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and having access to—I mean, if if you ever like study an instrument growing up in Oberlin, like you can just work with students who are studying at the conservatory. Like you take—you know—it's like I played the French horn, so I took French horn lessons with a conservatory student, which that's is amazing. like an amazing um, thing to be able to work with somebody that's yeah. at that level. Um, I wasn't very good at the French horn, but it was. When did you When
0: (laughs) did you start? Were you really young?
1: Um, Well, I started on piano, Mm -hmm. um, and then I played French horn. I guess from like sixth grade through, like my first year in college. Yeah. Um,
0: What made you pick up the French horn?
1: I think the the sound is in. Well, I started on the trumpet, and the trumpet is really like brash and. Um I just the tone of the French horn is much, I find much more beautiful than the tone yeah. of many other um, instruments, so um, yeah, but I never I think it always became like, would I rather be painting or would I rather be practicing? And right. the painting was always a lot more fun than practicing, so um, I sort of had to recognize like. Recognized that at a certain point that this was never going anywhere, <laughs> um, and that I wasn't practicing enough for it to go somewhere. And yeah, yeah, that.
0: French horn seems like a rigorous. It's not kind of like a rock and roll sort of music. No, it up it's in definitely <laughs> not. You've got to be pretty dedicated. It's
1: definitely a nerdy instrument. <laughs>
0: um, Were you into classical music, or was it just the tone of it that drew you to it?
1: Um... Yeah, I was into. Yeah, I was into classical music. I think I've never. I've. Um, I I've probably, as an adult, I'm more interested in other forms of music. Yeah. Um, in terms of what I listen to in the studio and things like that, but. Um, but I think definitely growing up in Oberlin, you have you get to go to such wonderful wonderful concerts and Can't the Cleveland Orchestra is also a really good orchestra. Yeah. So, having access to those things, you innately, you know enjoy them and and pick up on them I guess but yeah yeah
0: so you could just be hanging out as a high school student go out and see music at like a local place and it would be students of Oberlin who are like I would imagine they're playing outside of school too yeah well they
1: have all sorts of you know they have like spring concerts and things but also any student that's going through the conservatory is like giving um I'm not exactly sure what the terminology would be, but like a thesis performance kind of thing. Yeah. So they're all giving performances throughout the year as part of their work in the conservatory. And those are open um, to the public. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, but then they're also, as part of the, as part of just what the college does, they're also bringing in all sorts of musicians, like, like Bobby McFerrin and yeah. people like that would just come through town, like visiting
0: um, artists almost. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, and that, all of those things. I think I was probably more aware of them because my parents were involved in the college. but right. they're all open to the public. Anyone can buy tickets. Everything is pretty cheap and accessible. So, um, it it the cultural activities are sort of part of the environment in a way that I think is pretty unusual. Yeah. Um,
0: so where yeah. you grew up, like your house and your neighborhood, was it sort of you Know suburban or was it green or was it more closer to the city? Or,
1: um, I guess you would, yeah, I guess you would call it suburban. I mean, Oberlin is about 40 minutes from Cleveland, mm-hmm. so you definitely have access to Cleveland, um, but there's also so much going on in Oberlin itself that, um, as a kid, I, I didn't go to Cleveland all that often except maybe to. Well, I, I took like a summer painting class at the Cleveland Institute of Art, like before my freshman year in high school kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, and the Cleveland Museum is great. And the Oberlin, Allen, the Allen Art Museum is, has an amazing collection. So things like that were great. But I guess, I wouldn't call it green exactly. It's not yeah. not green, but it's... right. Um, you know, it, it's sort of a typical Midwestern college town in that you've got a lot of, um, like, sort of beautiful tree-lined streets um, in town, and then as you get further out, there's lots of cornfields and things like that. Yeah. Um,
0: but the so. nature that would later come out in your work, you're experiencing that up in Massachusetts as well, right? You said Massachusetts, was your...
1: Oh, uh, Minnesota. Minnesota, sorry. Yeah. Minnesota. Um,
0: So that had an influence. Yeah, I
1: think Minnesota probably had more of an influence. um, And actually, in this body of work, probably particularly like night in Minnesota. Yeah. Um, And the sort of blue that happens like when light is reflected off of a lake at night. Or
0: 10,000 lakes. (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, And yeah the kind of saturation of color yeah um or or maybe my memory of saturation of color of sort of looking through a space um at different times of day and thinking about that so i think it's something that i didn't think was part of my work for a long time but probably kind of seeped in unconsciously in ways um and Although this the show that's up right now isn't really based around Minnesota, it's a lot of the work is stemming from um, parts of the Pacific Northwest. It, I think the light that I'm familiar with and that's sort of like embedded in my memory is is very much based on on like looking out at a lake at night with all this sort of fractured light yeah. and and the intense. Blue that you get and the closeness of color range and value um, that happens.
0: Yeah, I wonder. In the if, woods. Yeah, I wonder if your sort of that kind of memory of color and experience with seeing that night sky is accentuated because you weren't there all the time. You know what I mean? Like you. Yeah. You went there. I like. Right. I wonder if people who grew up in that environment would a feel that that's exotic or something kind of different. Probably not, right? right? It was probably right. just like, oh, that's the way this guy looks. Right. And then I wonder, too, if, if, you know, they traveled and saw your show, if there would be that connection, you know what I mean, of that kind of light. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because most, well, not most people, but a lot of people do grow up with one kind of sort of aesthetic experience. Like, I grew up in mm-hmm. Pittsburgh. I have kind of a grayish <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's like a cloudy, grayish kind of place. And right. I think there's a sensibility to color that I had that's, like, intuitive to me that I just feel like, oh, that color. Like, today, coming here today, it was, like, really gray. Right. And it just feels like, you know, like I can – I have that um, – I feel like that connection that you have to that night sky in a way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um. So the Pacific Northwest, did you travel there a lot?
1: Yeah. Well, so – it's been interesting the work I did like right out of graduate school um was all based on places that I'd never been to mm-hmm. and I, I it was like important to me that I hadn't been to them that there was sort of this removal from
0: Was it imagined landscape. or were you using photographs? No, it was
1: mostly using really kitschy photographs yeah. from like um like books that present like types of landscape of mm-hmm. like American landscape. And so I'd sort of collect lots of images of caves or lots of images of waves or cliffs or something and like come and sort of composite them together and merge them um, in the painting. Yeah, And I kind of hit a wall with that, I guess around 2009 where I started feeling like it was, you know, I'm interested in genre, mm-hmm. but um, it started to feel like more difficult to kind of challenge that in a new way, um, based on all this really kitschy processed imagery. And so around that time I started taking these long road trips with my husband and, uh, we would start out from Illinois and just sort of make a big circle through the West. And now the trips have gotten more specific. So like for this show, um, I've been to the Redwoods around, I guess it's like five times at this point. Mm-hmm. And a few of those were in the, just the last year, sort of um, gathering specific imagery to work from. So I, I'll hike through the space and then I'm like photographing constantly, um, which thankfully my husband's also an artist. So he understands like why we're stopping <laughs> all the time. I think it would be really annoying to hike with me if you, if, you were actually trying to go somewhere. right? Um, so yeah, I probably take about a thousand photos a day. Um, and sometimes I just stop and am photographing something from a lot of different angles and sort of trying to get a sense of the space. And the, So the paintings, when I bring them back to the studio, are really based on those photographs, but also like memory of the space. And I'm not... Um, I think the photos for me like allow me to kind of um, manipulate the imagery in a way that is fun, so mm-hmm. I don't feel too tied to it. I can kind of do whatever I want in the painting, but the photo is there to sort of reference if I need it. Yeah. Um,
0: do you use the photograph, to as kind of like an experience or kind of a relationship to the experience of it, more so than like information for color or composition, in a sense?
1: Yeah, I think... Yeah, probably definitely um, more for the experience. Sometimes for composition. The color, not so much. Mm -hmm. The color is more um, probably intuitive and memory-based in that the photo, although especially digital photographs now, and I work off a monitor in the studio, so you can kind of zoom in as much Mm -hmm. as you could possibly ever want (laughs) um, and see every single leaf or twig. Um, The color still never quite gets there like it's always going to be flat yeah. and um so I, I'm always sort of aware of that as I'm constructing the paintings I guess. Um.
0: So do you have in the places that you've gone and just knowing your work from the limited places that I've seen your work yeah um or do you have this kind of openness to where you think you might go to different destinations different places and an interest in the travel and the newness of an environment as part of the work? Or is it kind of like you want to go where the vibe is that you want to capture? You know what I mean?
1: No, it hap- yeah it happens pretty organically. Um, it might be that like I've never been to a place, and so I decide to go and possibly become sort of obsessed with it, mm-hmm. and then go back again and again. Um, and the work starts to go from there. I, I wouldn't say it's it's not usually like linear or planned, per se, yeah. um, and I try not to have like something specific in mind that um, I'm trying to get from it mm-hmm. in that often I find when I'm out there hiking, like the thing that actually ends up being interesting in the studio is usually not the thing I went there thinking I was going there to see right. Um, I guess there's maybe one exception to that and that I, I did a show in Chicago at Kavi Gupta last year and I knew I wanted to make, I sort of started making these paintings of the surfaces of rock walls mm-hmm. and uh, I knew that I, at a certain point I had sort of started that work but knew I didn't have enough photographs and information to work from to complete that body of work and yeah. so I went back several times to Death Valley to sort of take more specific imagery that I knew could inform the work um, but that's sort of rare that happens quite that way yeah. um, that I would like take a trip specifically to like photograph surfaces of rock right, walls right.
0: like a resource <laughs> right. trip yeah yeah. Um, yeah I asked that question too because in my so much of my work over the years was informed by trips that I didn't Know that I was going to be taking, or mm-hmm. you know, images from being abroad that I didn't know that that was going to be a part of, you know, right? It's, it's almost like you just learn by, I mean, traveling in general, I think you learn so much by traveling
1: completely, and, yeah. and you
0: see so much differently. And just the way that you're talking about the night sky in Minnesota is so much different. I remember when I was in high school driving across the country and then camping in Utah, and the sky is insane, there's more stars. Yeah then there is blue of the sky, you know, yeah. and you could see the milky way, yeah. like the strip. And coming from Pittsburgh, which is a gray, you know, different elevation, different kind of sky, that blew me away, you know. And then going to like Jackson Hole or different places like that in the desert in mm-hmm. Nevada, you just learn so much not only by the act of like driving across the country because and also people are so different everywhere and it's such a huge country, but mm-hmm. also just the landscape. The light it changes and Then you start going abroad and everything's even more different you know which is for me very exciting
1: yeah i think um i i never want i think travel becomes a way of like informing your work um with things that you couldn't have thought of otherwise Mm -hmm. like things that um that are surprising and like allowing allowing it to inform it in ways that you don't expect i think is Part of the best part. Of yeah. That. Um, I think it's also I've become more interested in other travelers. Actually, like as I've started doing this more and spending more time, sort of researching for my own work, um, just reading more about um, well, like people like Isabella Bird um, or John Muir, like mm-hmm. these. You know, Isabella Bird was sort of interesting in that she's this early female traveler who traveled alone frequently. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of, she writes a lot about her experiences and just sort of thinking about other people who've also traveled. And in her case, it was really pretty revolutionary um, in terms of like what women were supposed to do. Um, or what what Victorian women were supposed to do and then um, how she ran her life. And so it's sort of, I've found it fascinating to kind of read about some of those, um, those kinds of travelers um, or explorers and how they, yeah, just how that can relate to also a contemporary experience. Too. Yeah, um,
0: that's really interesting. I didn't, that's, that's a really, um, and kind of an inspiring concept with the network of like looking and thinking about that past history, you know, and in, in just travel. And what about the, the relationship to the history of painting as well? Because there's this, you know, traditional idea of the sublime in nature that right. is, I right. think a lot of people feel is somewhat shifted towards sublime, the sublime of technological information mm-hmm. and things like that. So one of the things I really love about your work is that I think it celebrates paint and landscape and that kind of magic that happens and the feeling of awe in front of something that you can still have in nature, but I think people tend to forget about or shelve because you can travel so easily nowadays, whereas, if you're a settler and you're going across the country and you see the Rocky Mountains, it's like amazing. Now it's just like, oh yeah, I'm just flying over there and watching an Adam Sandler movie,
2: right. you know? So, right. you
0: know, do you st- think about that kind of history of um, oh, landscape sure. painting and your relationship to that?
2: Yeah,
1: I mean, I think um, the sublime is often. I think people treat it like it's like a bad word or something. Like, it, like yeah. you shouldn't talk about the sublime. But right. um, the sublime actually really has like the concept of it has been an important part of like why I make paintings and why I get interested about painting. And um, I think for me, part of the interest is that we have ideas about what a landscape painting should do and how it operates and the history of that. And sort of the idea of like um, man controlling nature or kind of dominating and knowing nature in, mm-hmm. in some way and and how flawed that is. Um, but from a contemporary perspective, like I, I'm always interested in how the paintings can like move a conversation forward and do something different in terms of how we think about painting or how we think about landscape and painting, how we think about materiality. Um, Flatness, abstraction, yeah. representation um but so all of those things, but also um, like how 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 does it also relate to like how can a landscape painting challenge what we expect of it, i guess um like that in going out and seeing things as much as like, yes, the United States is really developed and it's very hard to feel like um, you're sort of in the wilderness here, right? But it's actually not so hard to get to a place that's actually quite wild. Yeah. Um, And there's the idea that nature is not in, that we're not in control of, which I, also, really think is an important issue um, from a contemporary perspective, um, just in terms of what's happening to our landscape and our, our environment, but um, but also the fact that you can sort of still have a sense of awe in these places. That um, you know, as sort of funny as a place like like Carlsbad Caverns, for example, like. Um, They've been, I think, I don't know if they've completed it, but the last time I went, they were sort of in the middle of like revamping the lighting inside the cave. So like half of it was sort of still the rainbow lighting that used to be attractive to people, sort of make it look a little bit more like Disneyland. Right. And they were switching it out to like cooler lights that were just gonna present it more as what it is. Um, but you're still left with this sense of awe of the space and awe of like, what did, you know, what did the first person who saw this think about yeah. this? And I feel that every time I go to the redwoods, it's like there—you're in this sort of cathedral of trees, and it's still like there's still magic in that, mm-hmm. um, and and wonder, and and you, that's still kind of undeniable—the romance yeah, of that. There's um, nothing like
0: it. That's why I think yeah. because when you have that feeling, no, no. It doesn't matter how many zeros and ones or whatever that the complexity of you know information is in our current right, environment right. nothing can sort of relate to that experience of of the awe of nature you know
1: right yeah
0: and and yes it's a little maybe it's a little less impactful now because of our way of representing you know like the history of re- representing the landscape is is a lot different than you know early people who were just traveling and seeing that stuff for the first time but I think it still happens. Like, I recently, I've been to Japan a bunch, but recently I went to really close to the base of Mount Fuji. And it is so big. (laughs) (laughs) And you see it from the bullet train, and it looks like, you're like, wow, that's a huge mountain. But when you're driving up to it, it is so freakishly big that it, it messes with your sense of scale, you know? Like, it just seems like an alien. Spacecraft or something just landed on Earth. You can't right. imagine how big this thing is. Right. And that's that feeling that you just can't get from anything else, you know. And I think there's something yeah. really powerful about that.
2: Yeah. And I think they yeah.
0: used to, you know, there used to be this idea in the sublime, like when people stood in front of nature that that was sort of a representation of God or that's there mm-hmm. was this spiritual experience because something had to make something so awesome, you know? Right. And then, you know, maybe that has been dampened down because humans got so confident in what we could create virtually or through, right. you know, our own technology. But at the end of the day, the power is within nature. Like, it's still... I, I've been talking to people a lot about that lately with, you know, the environment. Sooner or later, either we're not going to destroy because it it's going to wipe us out. You know? Right. <laughs> like, it, it just has an amazing ability to just kind of, you know regulate what we're doing to it, I I think that's probably more in danger in the future than it ever has been.
1: Yeah, well, and even when we think we know something, um, like I've been, as part of getting this show ready, I've been, I I read The Wild Trees, which is about um, people who research the upper canopies of the redwoods, Mm -hmm. and um, there's still a lot that we don't know about these ecosystems, which are fascinating. Um, and all of these you know all these epiphytes that are like growing in these tree canopies that are um, incredibly complicated and these sort of systems that exist up there that because they're so high up we just can't get to it right I love it (laughs) Um, And so you have these sort of radical researchers who are going up into the trees and studying everything up there. And so it's, you know, we think that we know everything. And then it's like you open up this can of worms and there's all this information that we're still discovering, which is fascinating. Um,
0: That's happening in the ocean, too. Right. They just keep. Because we're having the ability to dive deeper and to study more into the ocean. Like, finding new organisms. And, you know, it's amazing that, (laughs) you know, and, you know, a lot of the Earth is water and pretty much difficult to, you know, investigate. So it's really, it's kind of an interesting idea. Did you see the movie The Happening? I don't think so. It's the M. Night Shyamalan one where the nature kind of forces people to kill themselves. Like, it's killing off people by emitting... This. Oh. yeah it's really that scary sounds good. it's really good I'm not I I don't like scary movies <laughs> it's just not my thing you know I don't like you know like monster movie or like I I've saw um, was it Independence Day and it's just like totally Bummed me out. Or no, War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise. Oh. Like, I saw that movie and I was so depressed afterwards. <laughs> like I really I'm up
1: for a good, like, trashy, like, epic disaster movie.
0: See, uh, I don't, I <laughs> for some reason, it bums me out. <laughs> it's getting app- a little too close to reality, maybe, but. Um, it, yeah, I think well, the happening—that's what's so scary about it—is that it's not like a fantasy sort of thing. It's it's based in reality. It's, right, it's kind that of, does sound terrifying. It has a real feel to it. Right. But it's just nature attacking people. Right. In a not cartoony way, you know. It's wow. in like a biological way. You should watch it. It's.
1: You might like. There's this movie, The Wind, which is this early silent film, mm-hmm. and it's. It's not really, well, it was probably scary when it was made, but it's not really scary. But it's, um, in terms of like nature metaphors, it's, um, you know, it follows this woman and she's like going out west for the first time. She's going to live with like someone she doesn't know. And she slowly, there's sort of several men involved and things go awry and, and she slowly goes insane. And there are these really trippy um, scenes of like this horse, riding towards her through all this um all this dust and everything and and so the wind itself like becomes the thing that does her in and she just goes crazy and um but the, these scenes of like the horse and the wind and all the um all the dust and dirt and everything just flying everywhere mm-hmm. is like really really good that sounds um, good
0: it sounds similar to like Metropolitan Avenue in Brooklyn right. <laughs> with <Right>. tractor trailers. <laughs> walk into the studio. Right. The wind just takes it <laughs> and I go crazy right. in the we studio. go crazy. Yeah, yeah wild. <laughs> that's funny. Um, but yeah, I'll have to check that out. That sounds good. Yeah, so it, that's an interesting idea of, of nature. I mean, there's so... It, it's just, there's so many possibilities with this sort of... That's part of the thing that's really interesting about these paintings too is that there's that whole side of it that's really intriguing to me. And then also the way that you're painting it is so specific and there's, but before we get into the way that you're painting it, can mm-hmm. we just talk about, so when you were in high school, mm-hmm. you started taking art classes? Is that when you started getting into it?
1: Um, yeah, so I, um, you know, I'm really fortunate. My, my parents have always been very supportive of mm-hmm. me painting. And I so I took like, a summer um, portfolio like building class that it was like the summer before ninth grade, I think, mm-hmm. and it was actually meant for like high school seniors, I think there like, right. yeah, yeah. And, but they allowed me to be there. I think it was a little shocking because like the first day I walked in and i'm you know probably like fourteen, and there was like a nude model and <laughs> and you know, I go home to tell my mom what we did that right. day, it's sort, of, <laughs> sort of funny. Um, but that sort of started things, and then I um, also took several like summer classes um, at the um, Boston Museum School like mm-hmm. when I was 16. But I would say the most critical thing was that I actually um, ended up studying with a painter in Oberlin, a wonderful painter, Melanie Margolis, who um, I took classes with her every Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And we would just paint together. And um, it sort of started out as like we were gonna work for like an hour once a week kind of thing. And then it just went from there and it ended up being, you know, three or four hours on Saturday mornings. And that just became sort of regular um, weekly thing. And Melanie was really wonderful about, in terms of thinking about what you can learn about painting in mm-hmm. high school, um, sort of presenting different kinds of work and like, okay, today we're gonna try copying a Fairfield Porter Mm -hmm. and today we're gonna try painting like Soutine Um, and things like that, that sort of opened up a different way of looking at painting Mm -hmm. and we're not so specific about like just learning how to render or something, but more about like exploring a lot of options.
0: So she kind of turned you on to paint. I mean, you were interested in it, but she kind of really pushed it for you as the possibilities of what it could be. Yeah, and
1: I think also in high school, like having something that you're doing for like four hours on Saturday that you just love Mm -hmm. doing, um, where you kind of lose yourself in the way that you can in painting and you kind of lose track of time. And like experiencing that in high school sort of meant that I went into college not being totally sure that I was going to be a fine arts major, but like being pretty sure that I really like doing this yeah. and that I really like doing it over and over again. Cause I'd already had sort of experiences with Melanie, but also like, you know, at 16 taking classes at the museum school, like spending all day painting and realizing like, I really still want to do this tomorrow. Yeah. And I really like doing this. That's the and key like this, to, yeah, yeah. And this paint, this like material is really addicting yeah. and, um, I think, too, the fact that like I could that I had people around me, like my mother, who was smart, to take me to things like like the Bonard retrospective and things like yeah. that, like where you're seeing painting in a different way, and right. um, kind of painters, painters, <laughs> and people
0: do it like they they're doing this outside yes. of just the hobby, yeah, they're yeah. like your teachers pushing it and saying there's different ways to express yourself in this and then you go out to a museum and see you know this whole show it's it's right. like you're seeing the different ways that it can work or that it works right. in society which right. is which a lot of young people don't get yeah you know
1: yeah and it, I never really thought about the logistics of it mm-hmm. um, it just became it just became what I was doing yeah um, probably in a really naive way but it um, but. There were, I didn't have big questions about like, well, is this a good idea or right. is this a practical application? Yeah.
0: Um, it was just like, I'm doing this. Yeah. 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 Were you an only child?
1: No, I have, um, I have an older sister mm-hmm. and a half-sister and a stepsister.
0: Because a lot of times, mm-hmm. only kids who are an only child have are really comfortable being alone or just being in a studio because oh, yeah. they can just be by themselves. Right. Then again, if you have a lot of brothers and sisters who are a pain in the ass, it's nice to be right. <laughs> by yourself. <laughs> yeah, so I, was it for you, it was just you always felt comfortable? Like, you kind of got in the zone of working?
1: Yeah, I think it... Um, well, I think high school's not always, like, the easiest age for people and yeah. having, like... This thing that you can do where you feel like completely yourself, where you're completely comfortable and um, where you can kind of hone in on it in a different way. Um, That's like the high school. It's like a really healthy thing. thing. Yeah, it's a savior
0: of like high school. Yeah. And it's for every kid, right? It's either. Like the punk rock kids who are into that music or the art kids or the sports Right the right. jocks. Everyone want, has their thing. You have to have a niche. Right. Even if your exactly. niche is like not having a niche, it's, then you're it's part like of being
1: alone painting. Yeah. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's but it's something that you can just and maybe it's that age of just like focusing in on something. Like you're old enough to really want to kind of like investigate something. Yeah, and there's that excitement about it—that early-on excitement, which is really cool.
2: Yeah,
0: and especially if you go start seeing museums. I remember growing up, I would go to the Carnegie Museum and, Mm -hmm. you know, see a lot of like I saw a great Van Gogh show that, like, I still think about to this day. Yeah, and there's something so romantic about that. You know, at that point of time of like seeing that work, and it's like this whole new world.
2: Right. And then you yeah. learn art
0: history, you become an artist, and you deal with the gallery stuff. And then you're like, oh, I, I kind of know the deal, you know. Right. But it's nice to think back of that time when it was all so open. It still is, right. but you know what I mean. Like, it's there's
1: a different excitement at that age in seeing a show and feeling like, like, oh, yeah, there's this.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and why? Like, how? Right. Like, Van Gogh. Like, why? What is? Like, you know, a portrait of him with his head bandaged. You're like, what? You know, and and it's, but it's amazing. And you just start asking questions, I think, like visual questions in your head. Yeah. Even if you don't know what they are. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you went off to school Mm -hmm. and you went to Penn.
1: Yeah. I went to, to Penn in Philly for undergrad. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did a lot of studying. Outside of Penn, like during the summers, because Penn is a BA program.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say it's not really an art school. They don't really. No, well,
1: they have a a wonderful MFA program, Mm -hmm. um, which I was fortunate in that I had sort of access to the same teachers who were part of the MFA program, and I um, took advantage of some of the program like while I was an undergrad in terms of taking like the grad critical issues class or Mm -hmm. just even sort of sitting in on the grad critiques and stuff as an undergrad because they were happening and i was curious about what that was was Um, it a
0: small grad program
1: the grad program is yeah it's relatively small Um, i don't know the actual numbers i'm guessing like 20. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, and that's in all areas or is that just painting
1: um the grad program is all areas yeah 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 sculpture video all That's of a pretty color. good amount
0: for the size of the school. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, um, I went to Penn State okay. Penn State for undergrad, and they didn't have a huge grad program. Yeah. You know, it was a much bigger undergraduate program because it's just right. a huge school where right. a lot of people go to find their major, you know right. what I mean, yeah. as opposed to, like, specializing. Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, Penn undergrad is huge, um, but the actual fine art department is fairly intimate, which yeah. is nice because you yeah. um, could still have access to all the other classes in the college while also having teachers that um, you got to work with a lot and Mm -hmm. who you got to know and who were really supportive, so um, yeah
0: So then you went to grad school, did you go right away or did you take on?
1: I did Um, I somehow got accepted to the Art Institute of Chicago and went straight through Um, and I think if I I probably would have waited if I hadn't gotten in somewhere I was excited about. Yeah. Um, but because it was there, um, I just, and because I couldn't really think of anything else I wanted to do
2: <laughs> for a couple of years, <laughs> Right.
1: It's like, I want to just keep painting. Let's do this. So, um, yeah, I was lucky that that, that that happened that way, I think. And
0: what years um, were you there?
1: Um, I finished at Penn in 03, and then mm-hmm. I was at the Art Institute from 03 to 05. Um,
0: did you like Chicago?
1: I did, yeah, and I loved the Art Institute. Yeah. Um, and it was, I think, good for me in that I had, you know, Penn, though it's a big school, um, The because the fine art program is smaller, they don't have classes, like get. At the Art Institute of Chicago, you can take a class like just in neon or mm-hmm. like the art of food yeah. or Chinese aesthetics or things that are way specific, yeah. um, but could be really helpful to your own work. Mm-hmm. And And so those opportunities were really great, but also just the plethora of amazing faculty that you can work with because mm-hmm. there are so many um, people on the faculty and you can work with people from other disciplines too. So um, yeah, it was all. I was very happy there. Yeah. yeah,
0: and another great music town. You just seem to be. Yes. And then land another. Did you ever go see music while you were there, or were you? Probably focused? less. I've
1: probably seen more music in New York since I've moved here yeah. than. Um, grad school was very like, low budget, studio time most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: well, take me but, real quickly through the, the musical history. What's, what are you listening to in oh high school? Boy. What are you oh listening God. to in, in art school, and then what are you listening to these days?
1: Ah, uh, that's a very intimate question. It is, sorry. <laughs> we we, um, we want
0: to know. <laughs> it's okay, I've divulged very embarrassing things that I used oh to God. listen to.
1: Well, I'm trying to think in high school, it was probably... Oh, high school's, like really. Do I have to talk about that? No, that's you don't have really to. It's okay if you like the Backstreet um, Boys. I don't care. <laughs> no, I mean it's like embarrassing, like Annie DeFranco, probably, or like I don't know, people like that. Yeah, that's, um, that's... Uh, college. You know, I I don't know that it necessarily has changed all that much, like.
0: Mm-hmm. Just, there's Any always what? No, <laughs> no, <de> i <laughs> the whole time.
1: You're, you're All thinking, day, can, every think day. Someone
0: else here. No,
1: um, I think, well, I mean, now it the thing is, it ranges a whole lot. That's great, like, yeah. it ranges from like Chopin to like Dan Deacon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just went to this amazing show earlier this week at um, the town hall where they had. Like Robert Plant and Emmylou Harris and all these other wonderful people on the on the um, roster, and so it it really ranges like from like heavy techno to like folk country to classical to it's it varies a lot based on just what I feel like listening to, but I. like I own a lot of music and it's really important to me to like have access to all of it while I'm working. I can't really work without music. Right. So um
0: That's me too. Yeah. I always have to have music on and I listen to yeah. I mean a day can go from like African high life to, you know, salsa to, you know, like house to, you know, like whatever. It, yeah. It's gonna it be all over the place.
1: Yeah, I would say like as the because I work really quickly in the studio on the big paintings. Like by the end of the night, it's devolved
2: mm-hmm. into, yeah.
1: into dance music right. of some sort. Keep the pulse. Just to going. keep exactly, yeah. um, and like the beginning of the day is usually slower, but
0: Chopin in the morning, drum and bass. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Um, And the music choices probably get more embarrassing as the night goes on. Perfect. (laughs) Um, Middle of the day is probably, like, an okay time to know what I'm listening to.
0: (laughs) Yeah. See, I don't think, I maybe when I was younger, I would feel uh, music embarrassment. Uh Uh-huh. And I grew up in, like, a skateboard culture where it was, like, the Cure and the Smiths were the cool stuff to listen to, and, like, hip-hop wasn't cool, or rap at that point. But I really loved rap, too, so I had this thing where I had to kind of hide it, and then at a certain point, I was like, screw it, I'm just going to. I like this stuff too and i think as i got older now i have no you
1: have no qualms
0: no buffer like there's bieber (laughs) songs that have come out and i'm like these are good which is (laughs) you know like i mean diplo did them but i you know i'm like yeah that's pretty good yeah like i don't really mind anymore that's good that's probably healthy yeah i think so and i've listened to my share of uh embarrassing music yeah you know you have to but that most of that stuff is good for a reason, or there's something about it, you know what I mean? True, I think there's a redeeming quality to Britney Spears, let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I didn't think that was going to come up today, but it did. (laughs) Okay, good transition when you're in the studio listening to this music. You talked about the speed of painting, so let's talk about your... I don't want to talk about your technique because that's kind of nerding out a little bit. But right. I mean, you you work generally quickly on these because there's a lot of paint going on and they're big. A lot yeah. of these are big so, paintings.
1: So I do a lot of prep, like preparatory drawings and small studies. So and actually some of the drawings are in the show in the um, side space. But mm-hmm. so those kind of, it's weird because those actually happen really slowly. Like they're watercolor and they're just they take a lot of time to make them, but yeah. once I've sort of figure out what I think the painting is needs to do, um, there's kind of a build up to working on it so it I tend to on the big paintings like start you know like around nine a m or something and then f- finish around i don't know two in the morning or something um, so go a pretty day. late and and it's it's almost performative in that like anything is kind of possible in that first day. And the paintings really get to a point that's pretty close to what you see in the show. Mm -hmm. And I'll sometimes make small changes afterwards, like a dot here, a mark there, but not anything too major. Um,
0: So one sitting, basically. Pretty much. Alex Katzian.
1: Yes. (laughs) Um, You know, I want things to feel easy Mm -hmm. and to have this kind of, Swiftness um, built into them, and I'm not interested in them feeling really labored and kind of um, worked in a way. And that's really only possible on the first day. So there's, you know, that can be frustrating in that then if it's not working,
0: you have to refresh. Hit the refresh button. Yeah, the... and
1: I'll actually just make another painting. Yeah. If I believe in the painting and I think that it's worth trying it again and that actually happened in, in the show, there's a painting of this tree that's kind of a shaped like the letter C and mm-hmm. um, there's actually, there's another version of it in the back room because I I made the first one and it just didn't, it wasn't sitting right. It didn't feel sort of, droopy enough, Um, Mm -hmm. like a lot of the subjects in the show have all this moss hanging off of them and all these things sort of weighing them down. And um, so it felt, it just wasn't sitting right. And so it's getting closer to um, the show coming together and I finally just remade the painting. And the remade painting is what you see in the show. And the other one is still, um, still exists, it's in the back area, but there's something about that of not wanting the surface to feel really hard,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like that. I want it to feel like it arri- was arrived at easily and with some sort of confidence, even though you know that's often feigned yeah. <laughs> um, through the process of painting. But that that there's a directness, I guess, to the application and to the way you arrive at the image. Um, that
0: yeah, like you see be it. Part of it. It's yeah. almost like you feel like you're seeing it being made. Yeah. I love that too. I I mean, I would really love to see (laughs) that happen because I feel like the only time you get to see quick paintings is when people do those upside down animal paintings on black velvet on like Oprah (laughs) or something. (laughs) Right. It's like, no, you can actually make a good painting that doesn't take two years. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? That has like air to it and is quick.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes they work and sometimes they just are horrible Yeah. and you just kind of have to take it as it comes and if you think it should work just do it again but
0: um that yeah sounds like I a think... really nice process i mean probably frustrating at times but there's something really direct about it and it makes sense too yeah. that like when listening to music that you want that vibe because there's like an energy to that it's right. like you're saying it's right. kind of performative it's not like you're yeah. sitting there slowly laboring over it in one stroke and one, you know, and then yeah. it takes like two yeah. weeks and you're, you're building it. It's almost like it's coming out of you, right?
1: Right. I think it's interesting. I've almost been thinking of it, well, the, it's very physical, the process. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of moving around that has to happen because the surfaces are so big. And I've started feeling like that's kind of in tune actually with the way I with all the hiking and everything else that I do as part of the work. So there's this kind of physicality to that process that's also similar in nature to the physicality of the way the paintings are made and Mm -hmm. the way the paint has to be moved around on the surface. Um, Because often I'm working with huge brushes and massive amounts of paint and just trying to wrangle with that. And Mm -hmm. I think for me, that's like a necessary part of my engagement with painting where Mm -hmm. I'm I need that kind of physical pushback in order to actually be interested in making it actually yeah. um, which is really different from the drawings, and the drawings for me are important because they're intimate and they're slow and they're almost meditative and how they how I arrive at them but it's been good to have this sort of opposite activity in the studio, like one thing that's small and one thing that's enormous, and they have parallels, but they also kind of allow you to. Like when I'm tired of working in a way that's more physically exhausting, I'll go and make drawings. Mm-hmm. And, um, so they kind of play off each other nicely that way.
0: I'm imagining the metaphor of the drawings being like your toes are in the pool, and you're just sitting there and just adjusting to it.
1: I like that. And the paintings yeah. are the
0: cannonball, where you just like <laughs>
1: <laughs> definitely dive
0: in, huge splash. It's very sudden, and there's a quick adjustment to that. And yeah. you're, you react. You know, right. Almost involuntarily, you just you know. Right,
1: and sometimes you do like a face plant
0: yeah. in the water. Yeah. yeah. Um, you got to get up and do it again. Right. <laughs> to get that perfect tuck. <laughs> right. And a giant splash. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh,
0: so when when you're working on this show, like you said, you started this work in this show about a year ago, right? Yeah. Roughly. Hmm. So are you? You basically know the images you're going to work on, and you're collectively working on these group together. Or is it kind of like you're, because it is having like a performative and kind of like that quick, right? You know, approach. How does that work over time as far as like building a group of work for a show?
1: I think it started with studies and kind of playing them off each other. It, Mm -hmm. It never happens in a like super planned way, but the I think. You know, I made a few paintings, and then it, it, I started to see, like, okay, I want to play these really sort of harsh exterior um, paintings of these islands off of these really lush, high, sort of very vibrant, color-wise um, paintings of of trees covered in all this moss, mm-hmm. and, and all these sort of night tree paintings. And playing with that kind of dichotomy, um, and it then it became kind of a process of finding the right puzzle piece almost in that I knew I wanted these giant paintings of islands and I knew I wanted these deep, deep like phthalo green trees and then what else comes into play? And that's sort of where some of the sea cave paintings came in and those happened a little bit later in planning the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at first I thought it was gonna just be islands and trees and then it sort of turned into these sea cave um, spaces and shapes, and and playing those sort of into the mix as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of more like one thing leads to another thing, leads to another thing, and then eventually, hopefully, those things all come together. I guess. Yeah. And it's been interesting. The, I think when I first started working out of graduate school, like I would, because I'm interested in genre and like landscape archetypes, I. I think I was trying to fit like all these different keys or parts of landscape like into each show. Mm -hmm. So it's like playing like a palm tree off of a cave, off of a cliff, and seeing how those things kind of work together in a room and work against each other or with each other. Yeah, like the space space. in between. Like what does it mean to have a palm tree next to that? Yeah, and that those things there's kind of an ambivalence about putting all those things in the same show. Yeah. And as I've gotten a little bit older, I think I'm considering that maybe more broadly within how I work as an artist. So this show is a, had, sort of dives a little bit deeper into maybe one kind of color palette or um, a, an area of of the Pacific Northwest. But that but the last show I did was working much more with just these rock surfaces in Death Valley and sort of seeing that as like a um. Something that's broader within how I think as an artist, mm-hmm. and so one show can kind of dive in a little bit deeper into those spaces or into the weirdness of those spaces, and and then turn around and make a show about some other part of landscape. Um, so, like this show, for example, is you would probably characterize it as much more representational than the show I did last year mm-hmm. um, in Chicago, which was. Most of the paintings were really flat, really frontal and very abstract because you were sort of confronted with these really flat rock wall surfaces, and they didn't really let you in like there was a lot of just paint
0: It looked almost like like minimal abstraction really yeah yeah, yeah.
1: and kind of tied to the, to the specificity of looking at a, of a, at a rock surface, but also allowing that to dissolve, which is something that i'm that I think about in all of my work is like that sort of point of tension of like things coming together and dissolving at the same time.
2: Yeah, Um, like
0: the bottom right of that one, you were like, you know, or the top right behind the tree, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of, it just looks like it could be a Frankenthaler, you know, (laughs) like it's like an abstract painting that's the nature is built out of.
1: Yeah, and that tension that happens um, in describing something and letting it fall apart and allowing the paint to, do its thing with, um, with being an illusion, but also allowing it to retain its materiality and mm-hmm. retain its ability to just be paint. Um, and yeah,
0: I like that. Sometimes you can let paint do its thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever gone to Hawaii?
1: I actually just went in August for the first time.
0: Isn't it amazing?
1: It is. I thought I don't know if I'm gonna make paintings from it. But I,
0: Did you go to North Shore? Where where were you? I
1: went to the Big Island and then Maui. Yeah. And um, we like now I understand why people go to Hawaii. It's, it's amazing.
0: The best place. Yeah. Ever. I mean, it's so amazing.
1: I don't. It's a little hard to think about how to use the material that that I took that I photographed there because it's it goes into kitsch so quickly. Yeah. But there, like we hiked out to. Um, moving lava, and mm-hmm. that was insane yeah. and awesome. <laughs> and right. Very hot. Yeah. Uh, and doing things like that. Um, there's also some pretty amazing sea caves there. Yeah. But.
0: It seems kitschy from a reproductive, like in reproduction. But when you're there, you understand yeah, it. You're yeah. Like, oh my
1: god. You know you're somewhere beautiful when, like, you're on the road and you're like, oh, another waterfall.
0: I know. <laughs> I I let's we'll just, keep, we'll just keep, keep going I was going to say you must have stopped a million times <laughs> yeah but zero. at a certain point you do have to go yeah. get somewhere Yeah. Um, I do that when I see a rainbow like I'll take the initial picture and I'm right. like oh it's amazing and then I'll stop again and be like no no it's better right. I just, so I have like 50 and at a certain point I'm like okay that's a rainbow I get it yeah. I'm going to stop <laughs> taking pictures now And right. it's just too much beauty in one like condensed event, exactly. You know?
1: exactly yeah I am very interested in seeing lands. It's hard to work from them, but in seeing landscapes that are in transition. So actually seeing molten lava in person and seeing how the earth is shifting in front of you is pretty spectacular. And I went to Iceland about four years ago and actually seeing kind of standing on a glacier and seeing where it was last year and seeing how it's receding and hearing it like groan and crack and... The fact that it is kind of this moving shifting thing which i think is easy to take for granted Mm -hmm. Um, but seeing that like actual movement in person is pretty great (laughs)
0: yeah and it's a metaphor too because that kind of stuff is happening all over the world in other places too in different ways you know right with like maybe more political or you know you know it's that's that shifting of the environment like crumbling or, or growing and all right. that stuff. Right. It's happening in our society too, so it's interesting to see it represented in nature. And you know, because a lot of times I think that gets overlooked maybe. Or it's not quite yeah. as explicit as if it's a crumbling place that has just gotten bombed out or something. You know? Right, right. But there is Or that's, something
1: that's been flooded yeah. or um Yeah, it's it's different to see kind of these things that are part of just how the earth naturally shifts and moves and changes that, and seeing those things up close um, happening.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, the show's amazing. Thanks. I'm really glad to have seen it, and I think it's great work. Everyone should come see it. So it's up for a little while longer. And people can see your work on your website, right? Yeah, they
1: can see my work on my website, um, on DC Moore's website, and Kavi Gupta's website.
0: Do you do social media?
1: Yes, I'm also on Instagram. You are. Yes, and on Facebook. I don't do Twitter.
0: (laughs) You don't tweet? No. You don't live tweet your painting sessions? No
1: no tweets (laughs) here. Uh, No Snapchat, right? No, I don't do that. We're too we're too old. I'm we're a not little loud. old school. Yeah, we're but not allowed in, like Instagram is like a new thing, newish for me. Uh, but yeah, I'm on Instagram at uh, Claire Cool. Yeah.
0: And do you have anything coming up soon after this? Or are you pretty much just gonna go back into the bunker?
1: Um, I'm work? back into the mm-hmm. bunker. I'm actually on sabbatical from teaching this year, so I'm very excited to be fully in a painting hole. Nice. Yeah. And I'm doing residency at the Albers Foundation in Connecticut Whoa, in the spring, nice. and, which will be really fun. Yeah, uh, but I'm yeah pretty much just like in the studio, which feels great, <laughs> <Yeah>. liberating. Yes.
0: <laughs> so nice to talk to you. Oh, so nice to talk with you. Thank, Thank you for
1: coming. Thanks. <laughs>